Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. How many of you stayed up late, and that's the reason you're old, you don't really come to first service and you're here, you're here, yeah. Hey, you know, we got a lot to rejoice at. I mean, hey, 24 wins in a row. Come on, come on. Still going to be in a probably a pretty decent bowl game, okay? All right. We're uh, continuing our Christmas series today called Moments That Define. And uh, I'll bet if I asked any of you questions about the moments that defined who you are, it would be very easy for you to come up with some ideas, some memories, some statements, some people that shaped your life, whether it shaped you from a historical standpoint in terms of shaping you and a whole culture or whether it was just something very personal to you. What are those moments that define you the most? For me, I think of a couple of them. I think of uh, a Sunday school teacher I had on a cold, wintry day growing up in Minnesota. This teacher, who actually wasn't a really very good Sunday school teacher, but loved us like crazy, made a comment that stuck with me, that put me on the final trajectory for me to decide to get over some hurdles for me to make a commitment to Jesus and follow him. I remember my uh, band teacher in high school coming to me one time before a basketball game. I was on the basketball team. Coming to me before the basketball game and making a comment to me that shaped more of who I was as a player in basketball than anything my basketball coach ever did. That was kind of a, a weird one there. But more than that, his comment to me shaped the confidence and the way I approached life and new challenges in general. Can you remember some of those moments? I want to actually take just a moment right now for all of you that volunteer in our Sunday school for the kids on Sundays, and I hope many of you will consider being a part of that if you're not. You have no idea, and those of you that teach in the public schools or the the private school settings, you have no idea the things that you're saying or coach, the things that you're saying that 30 years from now, somebody's probably going to stand up and remember that like I'm remembering it today. And it reoriented, it reorients people's lives. But we also all know that a lot of those defining moments in our lives are not those positive things, not those success stories. In fact, a lot of the defining moments in our life are those pain points, those points where a parent or a sibling or a friend or somebody respected in our life said something at a moment when we were vulnerable and it defined who we are. And you can still be driving down the road today and something will bring back to memory, maybe an oldie song will bring something back to memory and all of a sudden you'll find yourself struggling with that thought in your mind, right? Those moments may have been, for some of us, uh, patterns that happened over the course of a a long time, or they may have just been one moment in time where somebody said something, and for us, it became a defining moment, a negative thing. I have a, a good friend who has struggled with this tape of rejection their whole life because of a simple event that occurred while they were growing up. They had a large, grew up in a large family. They would go on vacation and they'd always leave one child at home to take care of the homestead. And he happened to get left at home more often than anybody else. And it probably, in retrospect, was probably because he was the most responsible. But to him it sent the message, we don't want to spend time with you. And we don't want to reward you with the fun times with family. And he struggled with rejection his entire life. We've all got those things. If I asked you what some of those pain points were, it would probably take less than a second 
for some of those memories to come back to your mind. And the thing it is that Christmas brings some of those out for us, right? How many of you have ever been told by a friend or a spouse that when you go hang out with your big extended family gatherings, you're different? You become more snarky or you become more distant or something happens. You change in some way and what they're meaning is your change is not for the good. In fact, for many of you who struggle with even going to large family gatherings or maybe avoid them, part of your reason for avoiding them oftentimes is these tapes underlying that make you feel uncomfortable when you get in those settings. They remind you of some of those negative, defining moments, and you don't want to be there. Last week, we talked about the positive moments in our life that define us, the things that we have to wait for and how we wait well to uh, experience those moments where our hopes and our dreams are fulfilled. This week's lesson, as we continue to look at the Christmas story, which I think is the beginning of the most defining moment in all of human history, we're going to look at uh, the Apostle Paul's rendition of the Christmas story. He wrote it 50 years after Jesus' birth. It was during the time of the reign of Nero, and Nero was the one who would eventually kill Paul. And uh, Paul was still in that time around and hung out with a lot of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. And what we're going to see in Paul's rendition of the Christmas story is that for him, after hearing all these eyewitnesses talk about it, the defining difference for him was how it redefined moments for him. How it takes some of those negative things that we look at in life and redefines them for us. Let's look at it in Galatians 4. It starts this way. It says, But when the time, when the set time had fully come. Now we talked about last week how the promise of the Messiah took many, many centuries to come. Generation after generation faithfully hoping for this. But there is this sense that Paul is relating to us. There's this sense in which God marked the calendar. It was sure. It was going to happen, and this was the time. It goes on and says, God sent his son, born of a woman. And we love the nativity scenes. So last night at the uh, birthday party for Jesus, they had a live nativity. Wes and Nicole Geiger, who just had a baby, dressed up. And it was, it was really sweet walking in there and watching the kids on their knees. They, they had an activity for the kids where they had to write down something they were praying for God to give them, and they had to lay at the feet of Jesus. And the kids in this dark room with... A real live mom and dad and baby were sitting there kneeling, praying to God. It was just a precious figure. But we all have our nativity sets, right? That we remember that by usually. And those are kind of plastic. Those are kind of fake. But the reality of what we're looking at here is that Paul is recounting a story that he has heard from first and second hand witnesses. He has spent time with the disciples hearing them tell about how Mary and Jesus would talk about his birth and his younger days of living. In fact, more than likely, the reality is more than likely, Paul probably actually sat and met Mary, the mother of Jesus, himself. And he's telling about something very real, something that's a very big deal to him that we need to pay attention to. And he goes on and says this, Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. 
So we know this, that Jesus was born into a world when the major religions of the world, and especially Judaism, was all about the law, right? It was about the Mosaic law. It was about the rules. It was about the morality, trying to get to a relationship with God. And the purpose of him coming was to redeem, and it says those, that's you and I, to redeem you and I from under that law. So here's the idea. The idea in Galatians and the idea all throughout the Bible is that God has a law and we all break it. We sin, right? But let's go further. Whether you believe in the Bible and the law or not, you all agree with this concept because all of us have, whether it's the Bible's laws that we believe or our own laws, we all have laws for our lives that we live through and we break them on a regular basis, don't we? I mean, come on. We're at that time of the year, not too far away, when you're, some of you are going to make New Year's resolutions again, right? And you're going to have the same resolution you've had for the past 12 years, and you break it every year. Or some of you are like me. You refuse to make New Year's resolutions because you know you're going to break them. We all have laws. We have ideas about diet. We have laws about how we should exercise and how we should care for ourselves. We have laws about how we should be as husbands or wives or families or friends. We have laws about how we should be in our workplace. We have laws that we've broken over and over again that we said we would never break in our marriage or in our family or with our friendships. And we've all broken laws that we've set for ourselves around honesty, right? And the idea is that not only have we broken God's laws, we've broken our own own laws. And what that creates in the way we approach life is that we live life through what we're going to call this morning a debt-debtor relationship. Now, what does that mean? So my son Jared and I, my youngest son, were driving this last week. And I was speeding, again, a little going a little too fast, and he noticed it, and we had this whole conversation about debt-debtor relationships. Now, we all want traffic laws, right? We want speed limits, because none of us want somebody driving 70 miles an hour through our neighborhood, right? But sometimes we get reminded about those by some lights in our rearview mirror, and a little piece of paper that quantifies that debt debtor relationship. What is it? Three hundred bucks? What's the starting what's the starting thing for a, a ticket nowadays? It quantifies the debt debtor. Now I didn't get a ticket. I deserved one several times this past week, but I did not get a ticket, thankfully. But we did have the conversation. You see, this idea is true of all relationships. With ourselves or with others. When we break a law, we have a debt-debtor relationship with someone, even if it is yourself. Paul says that same thing is true and happens with us and God. We break the law. We have this sense of debt. We want to be better. We want to be good enough. We want to prove ourselves because we owe something. But Paul says that Jesus came and Christmas is about redeeming us who are under the law. So we no longer have to live under the law. So what is redemption? Redemption is not just paying a fine. Think of it this way. Redemption is not just getting a ticket and paying it. Redemption is the idea that if your ticket's bad enough that your car gets impounded, 
you have to go down to a place to get it out of impound. And I don't know what it's like in Ohio, but I know a lot of places in the U.S., that place where you go to get it out of impound is still called a redemption center. You not only pay the ticket, but you pay to reestablish your relationship with your car because our relationship with our car is pretty important, right? It's all about relationship. And the idea of Scripture is clear and Galatians is clear. This debt-debtor relationship is a fact in the way we approach life with God and with others. We all have sinned and we can never pay it back. That's the reason Jesus had to come to pay that price for us. And, and see, even that idea that we can't pay it back is not a foreign idea to us whether we believe what the Bible says or not because all of us have debts and relationships that we can't pay back. If you've been divorced, you can't go back to your first marriage and pay back the debts for the things that you did wrong in that relationship, can you? You can't go back and become a child again and pay back the debts for being not a great child, not a grateful child to your good, par- to your good parents, can you? Right? You can't go back and change that. We've all done stuff in family or marriage or friendship that is hurtful, that is harmful, maybe even betraying of those relationships. And we can never do enough to pay it back. See, we understand that idea. There are times we owe people and we can't pay it back. And when you've broken God's laws, the Bible says it's not even possible for you to do that. It doesn't matter how many promises you make. It doesn't matter how much you give. It doesn't matter how much you volunteer, how much you serve. You can't do enough to pay it back. You always fall short. But Jesus came to redeem us from the law, so we don't have to live under that way of thinking in life anymore. And even though you are forgiven, though, even though we understand that because we've all probably heard this before, if you've been in church at all, you've probably heard this, if you listen to somebody on TV, you've heard this, even though Jesus has come to forgive us, we still tend to view life like this. We see this redemption thing like a judge whose gavel hits the desk and says, you're forgiven, and we believe that, but we still see God as the judge. And Paul's understanding in this passage of Christmas goes much deeper than that. He actually goes on to use a metaphor that at first all of us are going to go, yeah, I understand that, but actually when we understand it really in that context, it means a whole lot more than what our first understanding is. The passage goes on and says this, God sent his son to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. You see, what Paul is saying is that the Christmas story is about, is that it's not enough that you have your debt paid for. It's not enough that you are forgiven. But God sent Jesus to make us his son, his daughter, his child. Now, we all know people who have adopted people. In fact, the Schraders, we just celebrated this last year. I forget time. This last year, they just adopted. And we know the beauty of that story. We get to experience that story, right? When we think of adoption, our minds almost always go to little children and infants, right? And they're just so cute. They're so cuddly. How could anybody not adopt them? It's just this beautiful picture. But in the Roman world of Paul's day, 
That's not the picture of adoption. In their day, they would, they would look at how we do it today, and they would ask this question, why would you ever adopt a baby or a child? Because in their day, the question would be, you don't even know if this child is going to live. You don't know whether they're going to make it past their first or second birthday or past their tenth birthday. You don't know if they're ever going to get to the point where they are a contributing person to the family and to the society around us. So in Paul's day, the, largely the only people that adopted were very wealthy people, and they adopted adults. And when you look at what Paul's saying in that context, in this passage, what he's saying to us is that God and the meaning of Christmas is that he sent Jesus to make us his children knowing our track record. Knowing, as adults, all the promises that you've broken, all the failures you've had, knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses, knowing every defect about you, and yet God still chooses to come and say, I choose you to be my child. Not my slave, but my child. It goes on, it says, because, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit, of his son, the spirit of his son into the hearts and the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba, maybe you've heard, is not, was one of those words that doesn't translate well. When I was in Russia, it was really funny because there were words that didn't translate well, so they'd attempt to say the English word and stuff. And this is like one of those words. It's like taco. Taco didn't translate from Mexican or English or Spanish to English, so we just say taco and we all speak Spanish, right? Abba is one of these words that means whatever affectionate term you call your parents or your kids call you. My kids come up with all sorts of names on a regular basis. Some of them are nice, some of them are not so nice. Sometimes I'm Big Daddy because they think I'm fat. But other times they just call me Pops or Poppy. Or I mean, they just, I think, I think my son changes it every week just because he likes to come up with a new way of saying something. But it's that endearing sense of safety that comes with this that Paul is talking about that. And he says, so you are no, are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. An heir of God himself. The creator of all that exists is saying, you are my child and my heir. And Paul, in thinking about Christmas, says this is where it all leads to. That you no longer need to relate to God as slaves, as to God as though he were a taskmaster, where it's all about you serving, where it's all about you being good enough, where it's all about you understanding and following the rules and being really good at following the rules, where it's all about you earning your keep, where it's all about things you can and can't do or places you can and can't go. No, it says God is no longer a taskmaster, no longer a rule keeper, no longer a judge, no longer a boss, just concerned about what you can bring to the bottom line of life because you are no longer slaves. So can I ask you a question? I shouldn't really say that because I'm going to ask it anyway, right? In what ways do you still innately respond to God as if he were as if you were a slave rather than a loved child who is an heir. 
In what ways do you respond to God as though you are still a slave instead of a child or an heir? What language do you use that keeps you thinking of God as a taskmaster? What do you do that keeps you thinking of yourself as a slave that you need to move past to be free of? Do you still feel, for example, like when you communicate with God in prayer that God is distant and you still feel like, well, why would God want to communicate with me? Really? Why would he want to communicate with me? I mean, if you feel that way, then you're still relating to God as a slave, not a son. I love the way uh, Christine Kress, our uh, connection coordinator here, prays. She, if you listen to her pray a lot of times, she'll just frequently just pray to God and refer to God as Papa or as Daddy. Now, you don't have to do that to have the same thing. I don't necessarily do that, but I, but I am always trying to be aware in my own gut how am I approaching God, and do I feel like he needs to stay at a distance? Do I feel like he really wants me to be with him and talk with him? And it says a lot as to whether I'm responding to him as a son or as a slave. Now, we're complex people. I mean, sometimes we can pray to God as though we're a child and we're accepted by God, and yet there's another aspect of our lives that sometimes we restrain from him because we're still acting like a slave in our emotions. And that's another way that we can determine the difference between whether we're approaching God as a slave or a child is the way we think about our emotions. Think about this. Slaves live life through a grid of fear that they will displease their master. And therefore, slaves live with very tight-vested, guarded emotions. Not just about the lows of life, but also about the highs of life that we have. The highs and the successes, we don't want to celebrate too much or own too much to the really good things about us because we're afraid that we'll become prideful and we'll take credit away from our master. I have a really good friend that from college days that every now and then, even though we're geographically separated, I spend I, I get in touch with him. And, and uh, this, this friend, is, his life has literally impacted thousands of people in a positive way. And yet, if you go up to him and compliment him at the moment of impact of something being really good going on, you will, you will easily see him. He'll look down. His eyes will kind of close. You'll, you'll see him try not to smile. And his response to you will be, uh, well, praise God, I'm nothing. Is that what we, if you're a parent or your parents towards you, think about their child? Is that what we want the response to be? Isn't part of the great delight of being a parent, being a good father, a good mother, the fact that we get to see our children succeed? We get to see them revel in their strengths and enjoy their successes and the honors that they get? Isn't that what we want to see? And, and we worry about pride, but pride is, pride is not reveling in saying, I'm good at this. Pride is not reveling in saying, I can't believe we did so good. That's not pride. Pride is rejoicing in yourself and your abilities to the point of lacking acknowledgement of God and your dependence and lacking acknowledgement of your dependency upon God. It's not simply saying, I did really well in this and I'm good at this. Our Father has great joy in loving what you're good at. 
What you're good at, and you acknowledging that, you're simply acknowledging something that's part of him that he gave you. And isn't it true that if you're a parent or if you're a, all of us are children of somebody, that, that a child needs to be able to come home and, and loves the opportunity to talk about the things they did really well that day? They need space for that kind of thing in their life, to feel good and to grow up well. But slaves fear taking credit because their concept of the master is that the master is domineering. The master is insecure, all about the power and all about the glory. But the Christmas story is that Jesus came with one goal, a goal of freeing us, a goal of adopting us, a goal of making us like him, a co Heir with him. You see, in God, there is no insecure protectiveness that we need to be worried about at all. Now, we've talked in the past about emotions enough, I think, on the negative side that we've talked very openly about how God wants us to be honest and real with our anger, with our disappointment, with our feelings, and how he wants to be that safe father that can just envelop you as you come, even if you're angry at him. Slaves aren't free to do that because they're free. They're, they're, they're fearful of a whipping or a demotion if they express their anger towards their master. But God is a loving father who wants us to feel free to express that in the safety of his arms. So there's another way that we can determine as well whether we are living life through the grid of slave or child of God. And that's this. Do you still barter or negotiate with God as if he were a judge? If so, you're still relating to him as a slave, not as a son. If you're saying and going through life saying, Oh God, if you will do X, I will do Y. Or if I do Y, would you do X? Now, we all know that we as kids went and bartered with our parents at some point. And we know our kids come and barter with us at some point. But here's the deal. We don't consider that to be a healthy thing if that's what they're doing all the time, right? Family isn't about, if you do this, I will do that. Family is about love. It's about pitching in with no strings attached. It's a place where you're more than a commodity. You are actually loved and cared for unconditionally. Children who are loved typically come very simply to their parents with their needs, with their desires, because they're confident their parents want to know them. Their parents have a track record of going to bat for them, of supporting them, and there's a safety in wanting to come to them. And God wants us to have the same safety in coming to Him. And in the last way, when you sin and fa- When you sin and fail, do you feel like cowering and kneeling before God or do you expect him to reach out to you with a loving touch and pull you in for a hug as he forgives you and coaches you and leads you into a more healthy way of living? If your primary feeling is cowering or shame, then you're still living life through the grid of a slave and not a son. And the story of the Christmas is God wants us to learn the freedom of living as sons and daughters. So let's pause here because I want, I want you to allow God to come to you in an experience and just make this very real to you. So uh, however you want to do that, if you want to close your eyes because that's easier for you not to be distracted, if you want to keep your eyes open, doesn't matter to me. 
But I want you to trust, even if you're, even if you lack confidence that you can hear from God, I want you to trust that He's going to direct your thoughts right now and bring to mind the things that you need to think about. Just, just go with me on that, okay? And I want you to, in your mind, ask Jesus this question. Just say in your mind, Jesus, in what ways am I not receiving your gift of coming to make me a son or a daughter and still responding to you as a slave? And let him bring those things to mind. In what ways am I still responding to you as a slave and not a son or a daughter? The Bible is replete with examples of how God wants to use in meditation our emotions, our imagination, and our thoughts. So would you just stay with that fo- those thoughts that came to mind? Maybe it's one thing, maybe it's more than one thing that you feel like you still tend to respond to God as a slave. Would you keep those things in your mind now, and would you allow your imagination to see Jesus coming to you and touching that area so that you begin to feel like a son or a daughter in that area? What would that look like? What would that feel like? Allow the Holy Spirit just to come to you now and make that real. I want to encourage you through maybe over this holiday season some more times where you just find a quiet place to allow God to come to you in those same two questions and redefine some of the ways you see him and begin to bring freedom to you to see him how he really wants to bring his gift of Jesus and Christmas to you. You see, the peace of Christmas is not centered in the evenings of quiet and the beautiful romantic music surrounded by a beautifully lit Christmas tree, which in our house this year has lots of colored lights on, if you are here last Sunday. Though that's the gift of God. My son walks into our, our room every day and says, those colored lights are so pretty. I think it's just to egg Wendy on. The peace of Christmas is not even just found in the fact that God came to forgive us and save us. The peace of God is found in the depths of experiencing that not only God wants wanting to forgive us, but to also make us his own kids 
to make us co-heirs, not slaves, but children, and redefine our entire family lineage and history through moments with him that help us realize that. There's a story of a, a gal named Jill Jackson. She was born into a family that was uh, replete with tons of awful, horrible abuse. And she lived under that abuse until child services finally came and took custody of her. And then she bounced around between foster home and orphanage for the rest of her growing up years, feeling unwanted. As a young adult, she actually was having a promising uh, career. Uh, She kind of had a promising career beginning in movies, but that was shattered by a bad marriage that left her alone, uh, rejected with a small child. She was so overwhelmed by the bills and by the responsibilities that she was facing that Jill at one point attempted to take her own life. She survived, but that attempt to take her own life left her partially paralyzed. And as she walked through life, lost and adrift and alone, she studied every major religion in the world to try to find an answer, and she landed on following Jesus because of what she experienced in knowing him personally. Jill later wrote a song communicating what she called, and I quote, life-saving joy, the life-saving joy of God's peace and unconditional love. In the early 60s, this song, Let There Be Peace on Earth, was a huge hit, and it quickly became a Christmas song. And uh, if you listen to the words, and you'll, listen, you'll hear how they not only address the pain and the wounds that she felt from feeling rejected and alone and abandoned throughout life and the abuse that she experienced, but you'll also hear in the words her dealing with her guilt as to how she felt about herself in trying to end her own life. You see, the song for Jill was about Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and his impact in redefining the moments of her life. Now, we also know just from history that this song touched a key theme at the time it came out. It was, the, it was the era of the Vietnam War. It was the era of protests against the Vietnam War. And it was sung many times at rallies all over the United States to protest the war. But the sad thing was in those elements, in those places where it was sung, it, it missed the key element of faith that was so important to the author writing this song in the first place. The message that for the world to experience true peace... It had to be rooted in the heart of every human being. And that truth had to be centered in the power of the love of Jesus Christ, knowing God as our Father, as the song says, not as a slave's taskmaster. Today we're celebrating communion as well, and I can't think of a better way to celebrate communion than with this song and with this thought today because the elements are all about Jesus coming to identify with us to be like us and to invite us to take his body and be like him, to be a brother with Jesus, essentially. And he gives his life blood for us. So today, as we, uh, as we sing this song together, I want to invite you while we're singing it to come and eat of your Father's table and trust that it's not just forgiveness and know that it's not just forgiveness. And it's not just a magical potion for healing. It is an invitation to be God's own son and daughter. And all that means as far as the intimacy and the care 
and the warmth that he wants to bring to our lives. So let's celebrate communion. God declares your worth through the story of Christmas. He says at a set time, at the perfect time, at a time he planned all along, then and even now for some of you, he wants to come to you and define your life by making you his sons and his daughters. No longer fearing him. No longer keeping it at a distance. No longer holding yourself at a distance and walking away from him in shame. But running to his arms. I have the picture of me laying on the floor and my kids taking flying leaps through the air to play with me. He wants you to be like that with him, that familiar with him. That's the gift of Christmas. And many of you have said yes to that gift. Many of you have said yes to following Jesus. And uh, you realize up here that you're no longer slaves, that you're really his children, but we still struggle with that, don't we? See, if we could get from our intellect to our experience this truth that we are His sons, it will change everything for you. It'll change the way you view sin. It'll change the way you view temptation and failure. It'll change the way you view relationships. It'll change the way you view yourself. It'll change the way you view work and money and the way you view how God provides for you and wants to provide for you. It will radically change everything if we can truly understand and experience and believe that we are His sons and daughters, co-heirs. That's how He cares for us. Now, some of you have never said yes to Jesus in that way, and you're unsure of that decision, and that's okay. Some of you are sure of that decision, but you're just holding back. You've been there kind of on that cusp for a long time, and you're just holding back, saying, I don't know if I want to be all in. We're going to give you an opportunity to say yes in a moment. For others of you, you're unsure if you've ever said yes, because you've grown up in church. You've grown up with the idea that God is real, and you believe that It's the good and right and best way, and it's the fantastic way to raise your kids to be in church, but you've never thought of God or experienced God outside of a slave mentality of rules and of morality and of trying to be good enough. If you've never experienced God as personal as your dad, as your mom, then the invitation is to say yes to that today for you. For others of you, you're interested, you're intrigued, but you're not ready. I understand that. You've got too many questions. And let me just say this. The invitation remains open for whenever you're ready. We're not here to put pressure on you. We're here to walk alongside you as friends as you try to figure this whole thing out and decide whether God is real. And we believe we're just, we're, we believe he will make himself real to you in a way that you're convinced. And we're, we'll just walk with you as friends as long as that takes with no pressure. We're honored to have you here with us. Let me do something. I, I, I normally don't close a message this way. I, I hate the idea of you repeating stuff after me. That I guess maybe I have enough baggage from past church that for whatever reason that feels weird to me. But I'm going to close that way today. Would you mind standing with me? And I want to invite you, if you have said yes, to just reaffirm that and pray out loud after me with me. But if you're here today and you have never said yes to that kind of a relationship with God, I want to invite you to follow me in prayer and just repeat after me, Lord, I want that kind of relationship. 
just go ahead and repeat after me. I want that kind of a relationship. I recognize that I've failed and there's no way I can pay you or others back. And Lord, I'm grateful for your forgiveness. I'm grateful for your love. And I ask that you would become that dad, that parent to me now. Come and by your spirit make yourself known to me. And Lord, I declare I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to be the best child I can, not because I have to prove something, but because I trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here and you prayed that, we're going to have a couple more songs of worship. I want to invite you now or after the service to turn to a friend or to come to one of us or somebody who's in the back praying and just let us know you made that decision for the first time and we'd love to just support you. We're not trying to know that for any other reason than we just want to support you in that decision today. If you're here today and you've got other needs you'd love prayer for, uh, whether it's a job situation or healing or something like that, we'd love to pray for you at any time during these songs or after service. We'll have some people over here ready to pray. Some of you who are willing to pray, can you go there now and join in worship with us? Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.